Um, turn in your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this evening. And while you're turning there, let, let me just say again what a, a privilege um, it is to be up here. We've uh, just been so blessed being able to come up and you know, be, you know, have, have a home away from home when we visit Gretchen Alonzo uh, every year. Uh, you know, not, not every church um, practices everything exactly the same. Not every Sunday morning looks exactly the same. But underneath um, all of those differences is the same um, bedrock faith in Jesus Christ and in, in the Word of God. And so uh, we feel so at home when we're here, um, despite the fact that we're in New England and not in northern Florida. And so um, it's just been sweet. And so to go from that to being able to share the Word uh, with you tonight um, is just such an incredible blessing for me. And I, I hope that you'll be uh, blessed as well. Um, Let me read, and then we'll go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Uh, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, as we come uh, to your word this evening, and come to such an incredible uh, passage where you have displayed so uh, beautifully and so eloquently your eternal love for us. Uh, I pray that you would just be magnified tonight. Lord, it's only your spirit working through your word being preached that can change hearts. Uh, There's nothing that could be manufactured that produces true change. Uh, I pray that you would be with me to preach your word clearly. Uh, I pray that you would be with uh, all of our hearts, that we would be receptive to your truth, uh, Lord, may we be, may we go away from here changed, uh, better equipped to glorify you, more like Christ. And in His name, Amen. All right. Well, um, Paul starts off this passage by saying, "What shall we say to these things?" So this is a summary um, of everything that precedes uh, the section. Section, uh, excuse me. Probably he has um, all of chapters five through eight in view. Uh, so at this point, Paul has spent uh, much ink developing the theology of our salvation, uh, our security in God through Christ. And now he, he summarizes all of that for us in this beautiful passage. Uh, the structure of this passage, as you can see, it's something that Paul uh, loves to do when making a point. Um, he asks a series of rhetorical or semi-rhetorical questions, uh, drawing us to inev- an, an inevitable conclusion. Uh, so in this case, uh, he's speaking of the privileges of our new identity in Jesus Christ. Uh, For each of these questions that Paul asks, uh, I would like to draw our focus to what this highlights about God's character uh, and the benefits that we derive from being in a relationship with him um, in regards to that attribute. 
Okay, so this is not so much what we get from God as it is about who we are in him and the overflowing privileges of that relationship. Right? That might sound like a, a subtle difference, but it's very significant. Uh, we don't take the blessings from God and then fill those up um, into kind of uh, an a la carte thing where we get different blessings from God. These are the benefits of being in a relationship with him. The grace of God is Jesus Christ himself. We are in a relationship with him, and this is the overflow of that relationship. And so uh, this evening I would like to focus not so much on um, those benefits, but on who God is himself. Uh, so uh, these are not abstracted blessings that we receive. They, they are the benefits of being in Christ. So this is because of our new position. Uh, our life is comprehensively reoriented towards the person of God. Okay, specifically tonight, we're going to see five glorious truths found in the gospel. Okay, so if you're taking notes, five glorious truths found in the gospel. Okay, and the first one that we're going to see is that God is an all-powerful ally of his children. Okay, we see that in the end of verse 31. God is an all-powerful ally of his children. Paul's first question is, who can be a legitimate adversary to us? Uh, the answer is obviously no one. Right? You may not use those exact words, but the answer, again, it's, it's obvious. If the condition is met that God is on our side, it becomes irrelevant who is on the opposing side. Right? This is like if you're having a neighborhood game of basketball and Shaquille O'Neal shows up for your neighborhood game of basketball. It doesn't matter how good your neighbor is. It doesn't matter how many people are on the opposing team. If you're on Shaq's team, you're going to win. Right? There's no question. In this case, the all-powerful God of the universe, he is on your side. It becomes irrelevant who is against you. Uh, and when Paul says if, he isn't saying he lacks confidence in how God feels towards him. Uh, he isn't saying maybe God is for me, uh, but I'm not really sure. Uh, another way you could look at this is that him just, he's saying since, right? Since God is for us. He's making this conditional statement to draw our minds to the logical outcome. Since God is for us, then it doesn't matter who is against us. Who who could be against us? Um, so uh, what does Paul mean when he says that God is for us? That, that's a crucial word. Uh, it means that God is our ally. Uh, each of us were born into sin. Uh, we were born with the default setting of being against God. Uh, and God, because he is loving, or rather I should say, but God, because he is loving and merciful, he made a way for us to be right with him. Right, this, this is review probably for most of the people in this room, and I would encourage you um, to uh, have a, a fresh mind, right? a, a clean slate. You might be reminded and refreshed at the, the incredible magnitude of these truths. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, it sums it up this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So instead of being against us, God is now for us. Uh, Instead of being our enemy, he is now our ally. Instead of being under his wrath, we are now adopted as his children. In the war against sin, we have now changed sides. We have changed our allegiance. Uh, So if the all-powerful God who rules the universe and orchestrates all things according to his good plans is your ally, what legitimate enemy could you have? Right? And you might be thinking to yourself, as Christians, we have many enemies. Right? You go to work and you are reminded that we have enemies. You read the news and you are reminded that we have enemies. Uh, sometimes you speak to a family member and you are reminded that we have enemies. Uh, Christ promises in other places in Scripture that if we are in him, we will have enemies and adversaries in this life. Uh, so this doesn't mean that we will not encounter opposition. Uh, Christ says that if we are in him, because they hated him, they will hate us. Uh, what this means is you will not encounter any adversary in your life as a Christian that matters, that is of any concern. There is nothing that can come against God or overpower him. Nothing catches God off guard. Nothing surprises him. Uh, I remember as, as a kid, uh, I never felt scared of anything if I was with my father. Right? I knew that he loved me. I knew that he would protect me. And like all children, I knew that my father was stronger than any other human being on the planet. Um, with God, that is actually true. Right? Our heavenly father is more powerful, is more strong, loves us more than anything else in creation. If he is for us, it does not matter who is against us. Um, this is exactly how we get to feel as believers, and it's, it's not naive anymore. Our Father truly is stronger than anything in the world. Uh, This means that we are able to walk through life without fear uh, because nothing can happen to us except for what God allows. Uh, He is an all-powerful Father, and He protects His children. Okay, so God is an all-powerful ally of His children. Second, uh, God is a gracious sustainer of the saved. We see this in verse 32. God is a gracious sustainer of the saved. So Paul's second rhetorical question, um, he's asking, what will God withhold from us? And the answer is nothing, uh, since he already did not spare his own son. Uh, The proof that God will provide everything for us is that he has already met our greatest need at infinite cost to himself. Uh, Paul is emphatic in the way he describes this. First, he says God did not withhold his son from us, and then goes on to say that in contrast to withholding him, he gave him up for us all. Uh, So if God did not withhold something as precious as his own son, then why would he he withhold anything else from us? He's already given us the most precious thing that could ever be given. Uh, He's already set the bar infinitely high. Uh, God sending his own son is a statement of how far he is willing to go for us in his love. Therefore, there is nothing else that could possibly be out of bounds. Right? If I say, this is how much I love you, anything that's less than that is a given. Right? And God gave us his own son. So there's, there's nothing else that would come at too great of a cost. For God to say, that's too expensive, I, I can't help you with that one. Right? He gave us his own son. So friends, this means that embedded in the gospel is the truth that God will never deprive us of what we need. 
you realize that in the gospel is the truth that God will never deprive from his children what they need. This is why Paul will in a few, a few verses before this that all things work together for good for those who love God. Uh, this does not mean that God gives you everything that you want. It does mean that he will provide everything necessary for you to be able to cross the finish line and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? God, God is not interested in meeting all of your material wants. That is, that is not on God's radar. Right? He is not looking to give you that Mustang that you've wanted since high school. Maybe you get it, um, but that becomes irrelevant. What God is interested in doing is equipping you to look like Christ and sustain you until you cross into heaven. Right? Sanctifying you the way he has promised. Finishing the work that he started. And everything that he does helps accomplish that need. And that is your greatest need. The more that you understand what your true need is, the more content you will be walking through trials, realizing the reality, the precious reality, that God is meeting all of your true needs, um, even when it's painful or difficult. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God orchestrates every millisecond of the believer's life towards that ultimate goal, that you would grow in your faith and in your obedience, in your likeness to Christ. Uh, Paul says that because God did not spare his own son, he will, uh, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I, I would like to, to pull the car over and look at that phrase. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have been forgiven of your sin, then you have been united with Christ. Uh, now you are an heir with him. Verse 17 of the same chapter, it says that we are fellow heirs with Christ. That means that the inheritance that Christ is going to receive, we are joint beneficiaries of that, and we are in line to receive it with him. Do you realize that? The, the inheritance of the Son of God, we are beneficiaries with him of that inheritance. That is what we have in Christ. Uh, Ephesians 1 describes it this way, that in Christ we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, uh, in the heavenly places. Uh, so friends, do not lose sight of how incredible this is. In Christ, you have an infinite inheritance. You have a heavenly Father who will not withhold any good thing from you. Uh, is this not a bomb for the anxious heart? If you are in Christ, you have been set free from needing to live your life under the constant worry that some unforeseen harm will befall you and cause your life to not turn out the way it was supposed to be. Right? You do not have to live with the anxiety that you are somehow going to ruin God's plan for you and end up off the rails in a place where God can no longer reach you or fix you. Everything, if you are in Christ, everything works for your good, accomplishing God's good purpose for you and making you look like Christ. Uh, there will be many difficulties in this life. Many of them will come when we least expect them to. Uh, but friends, when that happens, we are able to look to our Heavenly Father and by faith rest in the fact that nothing, nothing has befallen us that is outside of His good plan. Okay, third, 
God is a supreme justifier of the elect. We see that in verse 33. God is the supreme justifier of the elect. Paul's third question, who is able to bring charges against God's elect? Uh, the answer, no one, because it is God himself who justifies. Okay, so there's two aspects to this. One, that you have been justified, and two, God is the one who is the justifier. Okay, Paul first po- uh, focuses on our justification by asking the question, who shall bring any charges against God's elect? You know, so first off, what, what does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous. Right? This is legal language. Uh, God, uh, excuse me, it's, it's a legal declaration, declaration by God that we are in a right standing before him. Uh, those who have trusted in Christ are clothed in righteousness and therefore are declared to be righteous as well. That, that's what it means to be justified. God does not simply dep- uh, excuse me, pretend that we are righteous. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin, say, because I am merciful, because I am forgiving, we can, we can just move on. Right? We can just sweep that one under the rug. Maybe you'll do better next time. Uh, when God declares us to be righteous, uh, it is as a judge who pronounces a defendant to be innocent of all charges. So whenever a sinner puts genuine faith in Christ, it is as if God slams down the gavel and says, take off his chains. There is no reason for him to be here anymore. Uh, Let him leave the courtroom. He is free. That is what happens when God justifies a sinner. This is a righteousness that is given and not earned. Uh, If we were given what we have earned, we would be given judgment. Romans 3 makes that clear. Uh, We are given a paycheck that reads condemnation, and it is what we work for our whole lives. That, that is what we have earned. Uh, justification exists outside of our work and our earnings. Uh, verse 3 to 4 of this chapter provides the means of our justification. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So through the work of Christ, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled, and by faith it is credited to our account. As God's elect, we are impervious to any legal charges. No new charges can be brought against those who have already been declared innocent. Okay, so that that is our justification. The second aspect I said it focuses on the justifier, who is God. Uh, Paul says, if God has justified us, who can bring any charges against us? Uh, In Scripture, uh, Satan, he is referred to as the accuser. His goal is to afflict the children of God with guilt, to take their eyes off of Christ, and to make them wallow in misery and shame. To make them spend more time thinking about their sin than about their Savior. That is Satan's goal for you if you are in Christ this evening. Satan wants you obsessed with your sin and distracted from Christ. Here, God is declaring that no charges can be brought against you. He is the judge. If you are in Christ, he has already dismissed your case. Uh, In the legal world, if one of the parties of a legal battle does not like the verdict of of the judge, 
uh, in any case, he can appeal to a higher court. Right? And that can continue until it reaches the Supreme Court. When the Supreme Court hands down their verdict, there is no higher court to be appealed to. That's why it's the Supreme Court. Right? They get to make the final decision. Now there's no higher court you can appeal to. God is the supreme judge. No one gets to appeal his verdicts. God has rendered his judgment. He has declared us righteous, and Satan has no right to question his ruling. In the words of one of the Puritans, there can be no after reckoning. Sin has been dealt with finally, permanently, eternally for the believer. There are no charges to be brought against us. So you are free from all charges, not just because of your justification, but because of who gives you your justification, the judge himself. If it is God himself who justifies, who could there be to bring any charges against us? Uh, and notice who he specifically mentions as the recipients of this. God's elect, those whom he chose and set his love upon before the foundations of the world. Uh, these are the words of Paul immediately preceding this passage. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if you are in Christ today, then in God's sight, you are already standing before him in glory. That is how secure your position is before him. The work is done. It's finished. God is looking at you in a way that we can't fully comprehend the sight of heaven. God is looking at you fully glorified as a finished product already. How arrogant would it be for us to think that anything could change that? Uh, this means that God gives us the privilege of living a guilt-free life. Uh, friends, not just in the judicial sense, but here and now. Uh, our hearts. We get to live free of guilt. Uh, your sin has not been partially taken care of. Christ's work is finished. He declared that his work was finished. Uh, it is not arrogant or naive to live your life with a clean conscience. Friends, please, let me say that again. It is not arrogant. It is not naive. It is not foolish. It is not childish to live your life with a clean conscience, with the sweetness of a clean conscience. That is the fruit of trusting in what God has done for you in Christ. A perpetually troubled conscience is a sign of one of two things. Either someone has not come to truly trust in Christ at all and their conscience is rightfully bothered by their sin uh, because they have not experienced true freedom from their guilt, or... And this is sadly where so many Christians, myself included, can spend so much time. They do not understand the full and complete ramifications of Christ's work on their behalf. Our conscience are troubled when we lose sight of Christ's finished work for us. Beloved, if you are in Christ today, there are no accusations left to be made against you. God has already taken care of every single one of them for all time. Number four, Christ is a victorious advocate of the forgiven. We see that in verse 34. 
Christ is a victorious advocate of the forgiven. Uh, Paul asks his fourth rhetorical question. He says, who is able to condemn? Um, Obviously, there's a very large overlap between this point and the previous one. Uh, And in all reality, this isn't isn't even a separate point. Uh, These are just simply two vantage points of looking at the same thing. Uh, They aren't separate categories. They're just different perspectives. Uh, Verse 33 is about how our justification from God the Father frees us from accusation. Verse 34 focuses on how Christ's work on our behalf frees us from condemnation. Uh, So this is more focused on that final verdict. We have already seen that no one can bring charges against us because we have been justified. Now we see no one can condemn us. No one can declare us guilty because of who Christ is and what he has done. Paul specifically focuses on three aspects of Christ here. The first He focuses on Christ as a Savior. Uh, Paul says that Christ has died and has been raised. We deserve death, uh, as we have already talked about, and the death that we deserve was taken by Christ, who, after he died, was raised from the dead, showing the acceptance of his sacrifice and his victory over death. Uh, This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, right? Christ took our place. Christ received our death, and we receive his life. So how could we receive a sentence of condemnation when our condemnation has already been received by someone else? Secondly, Paul looks at Christ as ruler. Uh, It says that he is at the right hand of God. This denotes his divine authority. After rising from the dead, he ascended to his rightful position in heaven with his father. So if the one who died for you is the one who is in charge of everything, then who could have the authority to bring condemnation against you? Right? Jesus doesn't have a boss. Jesus is God. No one has the authority to challenge what he has already done. Uh, as R.C. Sproul puts it in his commentary on Romans, the highest tribunal in the cosmos is the one who died for us. Okay? And thirdly, Paul looks at Christ as intercessor. So as he stands, at the right hand of God. He is interceding for us. He is actively interceding for us. Uh, In Greek, this word means to make earnest request, to plead for someone. So in other words, Christ is pleading our case for us in heaven. Uh, This is reminiscent of the words from 1 John in chapter 2, when he says, my little children, I am writing writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. In the Old Testament, the high priest was the representative of the people before God. Once a year, he would go into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice for the guilt of the entire nation of Israel. So in this way, he functioned as intercessor between God and the nation of Israel. This is the significance of the temple curtain tearing in two from top to bottom when Christ died showing that we now have direct access to God without a human intermediary. And the reason this is able to happen, the reason this is possible, is because Jesus Christ himself now functions as our intermediary. He himself is our intercessor. He is our perfect, undefeated defense attorney. So in light of all of this, who Christ is and what he has done, no one can condemn us. 
We are secure in the position which he has purchased for us. Uh, so far, we've seen that God is an all-powerful ally of his children, uh, that God is a gracious sustainer of the saved, that God is a supreme justifier of the elect, that Christ is a victorious advocate of the forgiven. Um, lastly, we'll see that Christ is an eternal lover of the redeemed. Okay, number five, Christ is an eternal lover of the redeemed. Paul's final question is, who can separate us from the love of Christ. Uh, this is the climactic finish in the progression of this passage. Uh, this is the final question and answer, and it goes from verse 35 all the way through the end of the chapter. Uh, Paul transitions from mostly focusing on the judicial aspects of our relationship with God, uh, now turning to focus more on Christ and the Father's loving disposition towards us. So rather than simply stating the question, uh, this time, Paul takes time to build the scene and increase our suspense. Uh, he doesn't want this question to seem offhanded or nonchalant. Right? He doesn't want this to seem like no big deal. Uh, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Uh, so in this list, uh, Paul identifies general sufferings and trials of life specific sufferings and persecutions for the sake of being a Christian, and even the potential loss of one's life. Uh, so what is Paul really asking? He is asking if there is any suffering, any persecution that you can encounter in this life with the power to separate you from Christ's love. Or perhaps more pertinently, does experiencing these things indicate that Christ does not love you? I think that's the question that we often wrestle with. If I'm experiencing this, does this mean that God doesn't love me the way that he said he does? As believers in the early church heard this, who were currently experiencing danger, loss of food or housing or resources because of the fact that they were Christians, uh, their ears would have perked up. Right? They would have been able to intrinsically relate to what Paul was talking about. They possibly had already experienced different elements of this list. Uh, Paul himself, at the time of writing this, had already experienced all of these things, except for the loss of his life, which he would experience later at the hands of the Romans. Um, and then, as if to substantiate his description of the trials of our life as God's children, he goes on to quote Psalm 44, verse 22. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, Lord... We are regarded as helpless and expendable. Our lives are constantly being taken from us. Uh, this would have been a helpful reminder to the church in Rome, reading this, as it is to us, that uh, nothing is new, right? God's people have always suffered for the sake of being God's people. Um, they suffered in the Old Testament. They suffered at the writing of the New Testament, and, and they suffer now. So let me ask you the question again. Does experiencing these things indicate that Christ does not really love you. When you experience extreme trials, extreme difficulty, great suffering of one kind or another, your heart will be so tempted to think that if Christ really loved you, he would not make you go through what you are going through. That the loving thing would be for him to spare you from all of the pain. If you haven't experienced this yet, you will, and, and I'm sure many sitting here 
understand already how tempted our hearts can be in trial to question the love of God. Um, And if you find yourself in that place this evening, I, I pray that you would find great hope and comfort in Paul's response. Paul looks at all of these trials, all of these difficulties, all this suffering and persecution. He says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That phrase, more than conquerors, uh, it means to prevail completely. Uh, It's not a partial victory. right? It's not just being on the right track and being hopeful that you will win. It means to utterly defeat your foe. Uh, There's no question of outcome here. In light of all of the suffering that you could experience in this world, you are already victorious in Christ. Uh, And please notice, he does not deny the reality of these trials and difficulties. But he says that in the midst of them, we are victorious. And where is this victory founded? Through him who loved us. Yes, life is hard. Life can be very hard. Trials hurt. They can be excruciating. Um, And yet, in the midst of your suffering, uh, friends, believers, you have already won because you are in Christ and he loves you. Cast your burdens on him because he cares for you. Our victory is founded in God's disposition towards us and our identity in Christ. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We are already victorious because of who we are. So we can ask Paul, where does this confidence come from? Look at what he goes on to say. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how convinced he is that Christ's love will accomplish our victory because nothing can take away Christ's love for us. Uh, With all but one in this list, these words come in opposite pairs. Uh, They're probably meant to indicate the different spheres of reality. Uh, Death nor life, neither living nor dead. Uh, Next, he says angels nor rulers. So in this context, uh, rulers would probably be referring to to demons. So nothing in death or life, nothing in the spiritual realm. He says, nor things present nor things to come. Uh, So nothing that is here now and nothing that ever will be. Uh, and next he says powers. Uh, powers may refer to earthly rulers, or, or it may be another reference to spiritual demonic forces. Uh, and then he goes on to say height nor depth. So this is a comprehensive spatial sense to indicate everything in the universe, everything material, nothing that exists. Um, and in case you want to be really analytical and try and find something that fits in between all of these categories that Paul missed, He sums it up with, nor anything else in all creation. Friends, do you realize that if you think that God's love for you could be diminished, you are saying that there is something more powerful than God, or that there is something defective in his character? 
That is what we do when we think that God's love for us can wax and wane. We are saying that something exists more powerful than him or that he is defective in his promises to us. His love for you is not based upon uh, who you are. His love for you is based upon who he is. It is manifested in what he has done to save you. Not based upon who you are. It's not based upon what you have done. Therefore, you cannot change it. You cannot alter it. You cannot grow it. You cannot shrink it. Of course, we would never say that explicitly, but how often do we subtly give into the temptation to think that God loves us more when we obey and less when we sin? Or what about when you are confident of God's love for you because everything in your life is going well, and then when things take a turn and get difficult, you suddenly find yourself becoming insecure or doubtful about God's love for you. Friends, there is nothing, nothing that can take away God's love for you. Uh, Do you understand the sweetness of that reality? Uh, If you are in Christ, you are held securely. Uh, Regardless of what you are experiencing today, the outcome is already guaranteed. Um, and look at how uh, the Lord bookends this passage for us uh, in the end of verse 39, ending the section the way it began. Nothing shall be able to separate us from his love, uh, except for this time, instead of saying the love of Christ, he says the love of God, showing that God the Father and God the Son both love us with the same infinite love. There is no dysfunction among the Godhead in how they feel towards us. Christ loves us and the Father loves us. The Father shows his love for us by sending his Son to die for us. The Son shows his love for us by dying for us. Um, And look at how all of these points have built upon one another. God is for us. No one will obstruct us on our way to glory. God will give us all things. Nothing that we need will be withheld from us. That is, no one can bring an accusation against us. That means no one can disqualify us from what God has given us. No one can condemn us. There will be no charges brought against us that supersede Christ's work on our behalf. And finally, nothing can separate us from Christ and the Father's love. Nothing will occur which diminishes or discontinues Christ's love for us. Believer, if you are here tonight, you are in Christ today, his love for you is eternal It cannot be changed. It cannot be taken away. And it will carry you to glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, in light of such an incredible passage and such glorious truths, Lord, we we could never improve upon what you have revealed. These are such incredible things that our minds are so incapable of grasping. Uh, we are just humbled as we think about your love for us, the blessings that we have by being your children. Lord, I pray that we would grow in our understanding of what Christ has done for us, that we would grow in our understanding of who you are and the privileges of being your children. May the reality of those things sanctify us, Give us confidence as your children to glorify you and obey you in our day-to-day lives. 
Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Christ's name, amen.